0: Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Vitor Gaspar's tie matched his report. He was proud of it. He showed me. He is, of course, not just a sharp dresser. He runs the Fiscal Affairs Department for the International Monetary Fund. On April 10th, the IMF released its Fiscal Monitor. That's a big purple book of observations and suggestions for what countries should do with their budgets. We are going to spend some time on Europe in this conversation because Europe is full of countries telling other countries what to do with their budgets. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Brendan Greeley. I'm at the IMF and World Bank Spring Meetings in Washington, DC. Ultimately, my conversation with Vitor Gaspar came down to debt. What is the right kind? How much of it is enough? And are we smarter about it than we used to be? He is deep in these conversations. I mentioned Olivier Blanchard. He said Olivier is a friend. I mentioned Carmen Reinhart and Ken Rogoff. He said he wrote the Portuguese introduction to their book. But we started with a single sentence pulled from his report. The quality of fiscal spending has deteriorated. That is, there is good
1: spending and there is bad spending. Here's Vidor. One of the examples is that uh, public investment has been on a declining trend uh, in advanced economies. One of the facts that we have been documented for a long time in fiscal monitors is that countries that have strong governance in terms of public finances, they are able to protect public investment. And by doing so, they improve the contribution that fiscal policy makes to sustainable growth.
0: So when you say public investment, are we talking about roads and bridges? What is, how do we define that category, public investment? So
1: normally, I emphasize public investment in infrastructure that includes roads and bridges. But in today's world, it also uh, includes uh, investment in networks. But in a broader context, when we discuss, for example, the Sustainable Development Goals 2030, we speak about investing in people and infrastructure. Uh, Human capital is extremely important, and so what governments provide in areas as health and education is crucial as well.
0: So high-quality fiscal spending is on broadband networks, roads, train lines, secondary education or primary education. What's poor-quality fiscal spending?
1: For example, poorly targeted uh, subsidies, uh, wasteful subsidies, for example, on energy Uh, transfer payments that benefit the most favored extracts of the population, uh, subsidies that uh, reflect rent-seeking, and much else. So I want to make this distinction, and the reason that line jumped out at me,
0: is that we have a very unproductive conversation in the United States. And I would say the discussion in Germany is comparably unproductive, where we don't do a great job of distinguishing between productive spending Uh, high-quality spending and poor-quality spending. So how do you draw that distinction for countries like the United States, uh, which end up spending a ton of money on subsidies for favored classes and no money on infrastructure, and countries like Germany, which in a different way ends up with a similar outcome, which is that they're so focused on uh, primary surpluses that they don't spend on infrastructure? How do you change that conversation from one of we can't spend to one of you can spend, but you have to spend well?
1: Let me start with the German example. When you focus on Germany, you do see that in Germany, uh, there has been a great success in terms of uh, rebalancing the budget and bringing the public uh, debt-to-GDP ratio uh, down quickly. So there has been a very strong emphasis on putting one's own fiscal house in order, but arguably, you could say, well, looking at the long-run prospects of the German economy, it's very important that Germany continues to be a very competitive uh, economy and improves uh, its growth uh, prospects. And from that viewpoint, given in particular the incredibly low level of interest rates that now prevail uh, in Germany, with the full yield curve up to 10 years below zero, uh, you could say that there is very uh, productive investment in infrastructure, roads, uh, railways, uh, but also uh, in networks, and in particular information networks, to invest in the future growth and the future competitiveness of uh, Germany. Taking a long-term view is, I believe, the way to frame that debate in Germany.
0: But this has led to a situation overall in Europe where there's been such a focus on minimizing primary deficits and even creating primary surpluses. That's where all the political energy in Europe has gone for the last, arguably, 10 years. That you have a situation where public investment all over the continent has plummeted, which is now having real foreign policy consequences. So um, I, I feel like it's not hard to draw a line between Italy welcoming China, you know, welcoming public investment from China, and the dominant understanding within the European Union, which is we have to create primary surpluses, even if it means not
1: borrowing money cheaply and fixing roads. You just made a, a very interesting set of remarks on my side. Let me just make two that I believe are fair. The first is that the trend in declining public investment is not particularly pronounced in Europe. We do have that as a common trend across advanced economies. The uh, countries that have been able to organize uh, their public accounts in such a way that they have been able to protect public investment and the policies in general that sustain long-run growth uh, are just a few. They're the exception uh, rather than the rule. So no particular uh, trend uh, in Europe. When you look at Italy, one aspect which is extremely interesting to me at least is that growth, sustainable long-run growth, is the uh, most Pressing challenge, making it inclusive as well. One fact that most people don't know is that if you look at the 10 years that you referred to, so the last 10 years, the accumulated primary surpluses in Italy and in Germany are remarkably similar. But the public that path is not. In Germany, it sharply declined and in Italy, it actually went up slightly. Why? Because real growth and nominal growth were much stronger in Germany.
0: Because the economy has more potential to grow. Because be- there's, there's be- better infrastructure to do
1: that. Because Germany is a much more competitive. Uh, economy compared with Italy, but I'm curious about this word "competitive" because we talk about it a lot, and
0: there are many things that create a competitive economy: um, better education, better infrastructure, uh, better processes. Um, but. Often when we say competitive, what it really comes down to is you need to figure out a way to get your workers to accept nominal pay cuts. You need to become more competitive. That means that workers need to be paid less. So, again, how do we change that conversation? This word competitive, um, particularly in the European context, is not adequate because so many things go into creating competitive. And often what it ultimately means is because you cannot adjust your foreign exchange mechanism within the European Union. You have no choice but to find a way to get workers to accept nominal wage cuts, which famously workers don't do. I mean, am I right in thinking that competitive ultimately comes down to pay
1: cuts? No, I would not agree with that. I would frame it completely differently. And I hope that my memory serves me right. So I remember... That some years ago, many years ago, I'm not a young man anymore, uh, many years ago, Paul Krugman was uh, arguing that this notion of competitiveness that was being debated at the time uh, in Europe as well was uh, not a well articulated notion because uh, companies could be competitive, but countries could not because the country could always uh, devalue the currency. And so uh, competitiveness was not a meaningful uh, macroeconomic uh, concept. In that context, I did discuss the notion of uh, competitiveness with a number of German economists, and in particular, the late Horst Siebert. And he saw competitiveness as the ability of a location to attract uh, investment and to be an attractive place to produce. In today's knowledge economy, a economy that's going to be prosperous in the future will not be competing in terms of uh, low wages. It will be competing in terms of knowledge and human capital. So the start of your remarks where you were emphasizing innovation, investment in education, the quality of infrastructure, uh, facilities that are complementary with location would be much more in line with the... Uh, or Siebert notion of uh, competitiveness that I believe is the most useful if you think about the long-run uh, trend as it will affect a specific location. But that then makes it difficult to
0: look to a country like Italy and say, become more competitive uh, over the long run. Find a way to become uh, to, to create long-term growth, but also maintain a primary surplus. Those two things feel... Incompatible?
1: Uh, No, you have to have a long-run strategy. You really have to think hard about the uh, long trends that will shape your economy. If you think about sustainable inclusive growth as having to be sustainable, uh, sound public finances are one of the cornerstones of that stability. Olivier Blanchard, former chief economist of the
0: IMF. uh, And a very good friend. (laughs) Um, And a very good economist uh, published this paper earlier this year, uh, where he basically said a perfectly understandable thing that, that ended up causing an uproar among economists, which is, I'm becoming more comfortable with the idea under some circumstances of higher sovereign debt loads. It was very cautiously worded. Is that also true? more broadly, of the IMF. If he leaves the IMF, has a big, long think, says, "Okay, under the following circumstances, I think it's okay. We don't yet really know what the costs of high debt are. It doesn't seem to be, in many circumstances, crowding out private investment. Has that thinking happened inside the IMF as well?
1: So let me say three things, and I I feel strongly about the three. The first... uh, Olivier is uh, making very visible the fact that interest rates are very low. And if we look at the comparison between interest rates and growth rates, we see that over history, across countries, and even in our forecasts, we expect for most countries, most of the time, for growth rates to be above uh, interest rates. And that is something that requires some thinking, and it's one aspect that that I did highlight in the presentation of the fiscal monitor. So that's point number one. Point number two is that if my memory serves me right, the formulation that Olivier has in his presidential lecture to the American Economic Association is that costs of uh, public debt may be lower than you think. And he presents a framework to do that. He does qualify his views. For example, he uses the case that we have been discussing Italy as a counterexample. And there's a Patterson uh, policy note where he does discuss uh, the case of Italy where you get the concept.
0: Because borrowing costs have risen in Italy.
1: Because uh, borrowing costs are volatile in Italy. And at the current moment, uh, borrowing costs are relatively high. Uh, in Italy. The third and last point is the conceptual innovation from the presidential address of Olivier Blanchard. He discusses what is the right measure of the opportunity cost of public debt and deficits. And he looks at the borrowing cost of the sovereign, but he also looks at the marginal return on private capital. And he shows in the model that both costs matter for how you think about how costly is the accumulation of uh, public debt. And so there is uh, the possibility on the crowding out that the cost is actually quite substantially. The latest addition that we make as IMF is to stress that financing conditions are very uh, changing and one cannot take Uh, low interest rates for uh, granted. And we have many examples of countries around the world that have succumbed to the temptation of high debt when financing conditions were very favorable, just to see that when uh, times get hard, the financing is not there and they end up having to manage the crisis.
0: Should we draw a distinction between countries that can borrow in their own currency and countries
1: that can't? There are many uh, factors that determine vulnerabilities. Uh, countries that borrow in uh, foreign currency are much more vulnerable than countries that do borrow in their own currency, yes. It's been almost 10 years since the uh, Carmen
0: Reinhart, Ken Rogoff paper that said, you know, there's a certain level of, at a certain level of public debt, uh, it becomes a drag on on growth. Um, we don't have to get into the particulars of that paper because there were also some things. There were some uh, there were an Excel error in the paper. But the, the the broader conversation that that started was: Is there a level of debt to GDP at which you can say, "Look, beyond here there be dragons"? Like we just don't know what's going to happen, and you have to be careful. Are we any closer to knowing what's that level, or is the level of debt to GDP when you have such a high level in Japan, and increasing level in the United States without sort of visible consequences, is that, is that measure meaningful anymore?
1: Uh, so, look, it's really a pleasure uh, that you asked me that question. I, you're not going to believe me, but I wrote the foreword to the Portuguese edition of uh, Reinhard and Rogoff. I do believe you. Um, and I read the book very carefully. And I think that we now emphasize much more that our view on public debt, public debt sustainability, fiscal policy is much more country specific. And so we don't go for um, rough and ready reference values like a debt threshold. That being said, uh, it has never been contested that higher levels of public debt, as the economists like to say, all other things equal, make a country uh, more vulnerable. They place a burden on growth performance of the country. And they also make the country less able to manage macroeconomic risks, be it a prolonged or severe economic downturn or a financial crisis. I want to get to
0: corruption, because it's the focus of of this report. Curbing corruption. Curbing. Yes. Yes. Not. Let, let's let's be clear. that The International Monetary Fund does not promote corruption. Um, when I read that section, I recognized a lot of things that we see in the United States. We don't tend to see the United States as a corrupt country. It's a place where there's rule of law, where you don't have uh, kickbacks with local officials. Um, but there were some things: decreased tax revenues uh, and higher uh, healthcare costs, uh, higher education costs that felt very familiar to me. So I wonder, do we focus too much on developing countries when we think about corruption and not on countries where you can see these things, but they're all happening in the light of day?
1: So we do cover in our bilateral surveillance, we cover all uh, members of, uh, of the IMF. And we believe uh, that good governance is a challenge to all countries around the world. And it's a job that's never done. That is... In our nations, institutional building is a constant challenge, and we can never declare definite success. In the context of our new approach to uh, good governance and curbing corruption, uh, we have a systematic approach across the membership, and we also highlight the international uh, aspects of the fight uh, against corruption. And in that context, a number of advanced economies have actually volunteered uh, to be examined for their compliance with standards for the international fight against corruption, all G7 countries and uh, three others. And the aspects that we're looking on have to do with the OECD anti-bribery convention that uh, makes it illegal for uh, managers of a corporation to try to uh, bribe foreign public servants. And there is also the very important issue of the exchange of information on uh, international financial flows, making it difficult to hide, for example, the proceeds of corrupt activities abroad.
0: Why is it so hard to crack down on tax havens? It seems as if the problem is pretty straightforward. You have a small number of countries with not a lot of visible economic activity, but tremendous tax revenues, and we can list them. And yet you have an unwillingness among developed economies to get together and solve what seems like a very straightforward problem. Why is that problem so difficult to solve?
1: The way we look at issues of international taxation have to do On the one hand, with the importance of exchanges of information, and the OECD has made a lot of progress on the exchange of information. And if you and I were having this conversation five years ago, we would have been unable to forecast how much the exchange of information has become uh, systematic and automatic. And that's very important uh, to fight international tax evasion. So you see progress already? Oh yes, absolutely. The progress is quite impressive. We also very much emphasize the importance of a fundamental rethink of uh, uh, international corporate tax. And the issue of the use of uh, a number of uh, devices by multinational corporations to minimize that tax burden is one of the most salient aspects politically that makes this uh, issue urgent. These are things
0: like uh, taking your intellectual property and moving it to Ireland so so that you can move your economic activity there, for example.
1: Right. If you have an intangible asset, and you locate the return on the intangible asset to a jurisdiction that has very low or no taxation, you're managing your tax liability in that particular way. The uh, managing director actually wrote a piece for Financial Times where she called for a fundamental rethink. She uh, looked at two aspects. One is that the concept of permanent establishment that uh, attributed uh, economic activity based on physical presence is uh, uh, obsolete in the current uh, digital world, and that the other principle that covers uh, your example, which is the arm's length principle that states that one should take transactions inside a multinational company as if they were conducted by independent parties in a market, doesn't apply to all these transactions that have to do with intangibles, where you actually don't observe market transactions anywhere. Peter Gaspar,
0: obrigado. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Road Center for International Economics and Finance and Amy Keene from the Financial Times. Please email us, alphachat at ft.com, for any reason at all. For my part, I am going to have a long, hard think about what we mean when we say the word competitive.